was somewhat common for English preachers to actually divide their sermon into two halves. They would spend some time in the early part of the service on exposition. Uh, this is where they would try to make sense of a passage of Scripture, more of a running commentary than anything else. Uh, the focus was more didactic, more instructive, and it basically served as the Scripture reading for the day. And then later on in the service, there would be a full-blown sermon. Uh, this now would have as its aim uh, inspiration or exhortation. So the first, explanation, and the second, inspiration. And uh, there was always a clear break between the two. Does this mean that there were two 30-minute messages in a sermon or in a service? I'm not sure. That won't be the case today, Lord willing. But in a nod to my English forefathers, on Father's Day, we're going to do something of the same. So if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to open to the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 3. And this would be called the exposition or the so-called running commentary. The first six verses we actually looked at last week that talk about Jesus being better than Moses. They're compared favorably because both were faithful, but Moses was a servant in God's house, and Jesus is the builder of God's house and over God's house. And because everyone, uh, God is the builder of, of everything, Jesus is God, and therefore he must receive greater honor. He is worthy of greater praise. So we've noticed in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is God, therefore he's above the angels, although he became lower than the angels to die in our place and identify with humanity, but then risen again above the angels, and he indeed is above Moses. Now, many scholars believe that the writer of the Hebrews, whoever that person may be, is actually writing to a group of Jewish converts. They've come out of Judaism, to embrace Jesus and Christianity. And in particular, they believe that these individuals were part of the Qumran community near the Dead Sea and were influenced by those documents discovered in the 50s and 60s that we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. If that is true, this community actually deliberately withdrew from Jewish society, from everyday Judean life, with the plan to reenact the Exodus and to reenact the entrance into the land of Canaan. In fact, they actually were thinking of a 40-year period for the city of Jerusalem to be purged of corrupt leadership and corrupt worship in the temple and then they would re-enter enter the city, much like Joshua entered into the Holy Land. Now, if that indeed is their thinking, then what we're about to read is so very appropriate for the people that it was written to. Even if we're just talking about normal Jewish converts who are now thinking about going back to Judaism, what is written is so appropriate. 
But more than that, what is written is so appropriate for us. So what the author does is he basically uses as his text for his sermon, Psalm 95, and he begins to quote it in chapter 3, verse 7. So if you're with me, chapter 3, verse 7, and it says, so as the Holy Spirit says, I've got to stop right there because this is such an important point. Who is speaking? The Holy Spirit. It, it, it isn't a trick question. The Holy Spirit. But if you look at chapter 4 and verse 7, the same verse is quoted, and it says, and David says. So now you have this wonderful affirmation of Holy Scripture brought to us by the Holy Spirit through human authors. And we'll see in Peter that same statement is made. But even more than that, today if you hear his voice, who is that? God the Father, speaking in Psalm 97. So the Holy Scripture is the voice of God. Now, he uses the Exodus analogy because Israel is a pattern for the church. They're not identical in every situation, but there are many similarities from the past to the present. The Christian life is like a new Exodus. And the Exodus analogy deals with this thought that there was indeed rebellion. Think about the New Testament and the idea that the Exodus is so prominent. When Jesus died in Luke chapter 9, his death was called an Exodus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Jesus is our Passover, and Peter talks about the lamb without blemish and without spot. And then Paul just boldly says in Romans 15, 4, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these things happened to them as examples, and they were written down for us. And he is speaking about the Exodus events. So the Christian life is a new Exodus, and there are parallels between the two, and the author of Hebrews is going to use those to the full. Now, what happened in that situation? Well, it tells us in verse 8 that we are to, today if you hear his voice, verse 8, do not harden your heart as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your fathers tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. So the exodus is characterized by rebellion. You know the story, right? The spies went in, came back, gave a bad report. And out of two million people, only two said, let's go and take the land, Joshua and Caleb. And because of that rebellion, they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. But verse 8 says, they were testing God during that time. <laughs> when God was planning to test them. Listen to Deuteronomy 8.2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way into the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to see what was in your heart? 
And instead of them passing the test, they tried God. They tested his patience and rejected his love. And we're always going astray. Even though, verse 9, you saw what I did. What did God do in the Exodus? Amazing things, right? Just think of the ten wonders, sometimes called the ten plagues. God pulled them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. It was miraculous. Time and time again, he showed up the gods of Egypt by saying, now you will know that I am the Lord. They saw what God did, but look at verse 10. That, I, that, that is why I was angry with that generation. They saw what I did, yet they rebelled. I said, verse 10, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath the pinnacle of the passage the climactic statement of this section of Scripture. God takes an oath. In my anger, they shall not enter my rest. Wow. We're going to skip the next little section. Go down to verse 16. This is a good question. Actually, there are three questions here, but here's a good one. Who were these people that rebelled? They were people that were led by Moses out of Egypt. Uh, they experienced a great deliverance. And they saw the miracles of God. Yet they rebelled. Verse 17, and with whom was he angry for 40 years? His chosen people, the people called by his name, the people he loved, not because they were lovely, but because he chose to love them, Deuteronomy 7. The people that he had committed himself to in the promises of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the people to whom he promised a land. These are the people he was angry with. And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not for those who disobeyed? Notice these words, rebel, verse 16. Sinned, verse 17. Disobeyed, verse 18. They were always going astray, the quotation from Psalm 95. They have not known my ways. Not that they weren't knowledgeable about them, but they did not embrace them. When God says in the day of judgment, I did not know you, it's not that he was not aware that these individuals existed, it's that they had never entered into a saving relationship with him. 
They've not known my ways. And unbelief kept them out of God's rest. In their lust for the immediate, they lost their hope in the ultimate. And what is rest? Well, thank you for asking, because I want to describe it to you. The author really develops this theme in a very unusual way. The obvious context is the rest of the promised land, right? Did not Joshua lead his people into the promised land at the command of God, Deuteronomy 12.10, you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord God is giving you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest. It was the land of rest. But the rest was very short-lived. Now, when you get into chapter 4 of Hebrews, one of the most difficult chapters in all the book, there are at least, get this, if I'm not mistaken, four different kinds of rest. Four different kinds. But today I just want to acknowledge the rest that Joshua was giving the people when they went into the land, number one, and number two, we'll simply call it gospel rest, which is resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You say, boy, good lesson. Okay, fine, we can go home. We've learned about the Israelites. <laughs> no, no. This is about you and me, as we're going to see in just a moment. Heavenly Father, Help us to understand what is being said so that we will truly hear and apply it to our lives. In the name of Christ, amen. Heart 
Psalm 95 is actually divided into two sections. The first is an invitation to worship. The second is a warning about rejection. And we've looked at the warning. The warning section is quoted in Hebrews. So going back to verse 7, it says, As the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The warning from the past now becomes a warning for the present. In typical Midrash fashion, the Jewish teacher takes the law of God and begins to apply it to the lives of people. And basically, I want to say two things from this text of Scripture. Number one, watch out for yourself. That's what the scriptures say. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart 
just like they did in the rebellion. You and I read the story of the Exodus and we say, how could they see such amazing miracles and then reject God and yet you and I do the same thing today? With God's rich blessing upon us and his goodness showered to us, we still reject him. And here again is progression. Here, that means to understand. <clears throat> it's Father's Day, so we have to acknowledge that fathers are very good at hearing, but not listening, right? Called selective hearing. You're hearing my voice, but you may not be understanding what I'm saying. I heard you, says the dad over the football game. What did I say? I'm not sure, but I heard you. God wants to be heard and understood. But if we hear without a positive response of faith, and that continues, then we become dull of hearing. That's mentioned in chapter 5 and verse 11 of the book of Hebrews. It'll be a while before we get there. But if you hear and don't respond with faith, then you become dull. And then with the dullness comes the turning away, which we have in this text. It says in verse 12, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. How could we? Well, it's because of the deception of sin. The word to turn away means apostasy and reminds us that they are not all Israel who are of Israel. That means that all who profess Christ and look like Christians from the outside are not truly Christians on the inside because it's a matter of the heart. The word that is quoted most in this section of Scripture is the word heart. And if you hear and don't respond, you get dull. And if you get dull, you turn away. And after turning away, you become hardened petrified that the word of God no longer sinks in but rolls off and you don't even know it the hardness comes from rejecting God's truth and then ultimately like those in the wilderness you fall and perish See to it then, watch out for yourself that none of you has this sinful, unbelieving heart. What is unbelief? Unbelief is sin. It's not acknowledging that God is, and it's not acknowledging that his word is true. The New English Bible translates it, a faithless heart of a deserter. These warning passages in Hebrews are tough. I think when I started out in this series, I was hoping they wouldn't be so tough, but they're hard. If this is hitting you hard, it hits me hard. But we need to hear it. It's like a doctor saying to a patient, this is serious. And if you keep doing what you're doing, you'll die. 
same unbelieving heart is in us often that we despised in the ancient Israelites of old. Now notice, you turn away from the God who's alive. In chapter 4, verse 12, it says, the word of God is alive. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And the living God gives to us a living word, and if we reject that, there is no hope. When you get to chapter 6, if you turn from Christ, there is no hope. So if we refuse to accept the living word, how can we know the living God? Impossible. Watch out for yourselves. And this has to be a daily thing. You say, I'll never fall away. Who were they that fall away? Who fell away? They saw the miracles. They were led out of Egypt. Be careful. Be on your guard. Watch. Because a, the heart of a deserver, deserter, the wicked, faithless heart of a deserter gets us by inches before we know it. So we watch out for ourselves, but secondly, verse 13, we need to watch out for others. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The word encourage means to exhort. It's the very thing that the writer is doing in this entire book, so says he in chapter 13. It is the role of the Christian community to live together in such a way that there is constant encouragement. What is the word? Daily? Literally day by day? Encourage each other? In chapter 10, he says, Stop forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. But get together to encourage each other. Same word to encourage each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. What day is that? Day of God, day of vindication. Now, you may reason that the day of God is a long way away, and I would say to you, how in the world do you know? You don't. But number two, you're going to him. Isn't all that far away. The reality is, it's appointed unto man once to die. Where do we get that quotation? The book of Hebrews. So watch out for others daily. Why? Each day there are new challenges. Temptations never take a day off. Wouldn't that be great? Temptation says to you in the morning, hey, I just want you to know, I won't bother you today. Have a good day. <laughs> never happens. No, right out of the gate. There they are to wake you up in the morning and begin to fill your mind with thoughts of rebellion. That's true of every Christian. You say, I know someone who's so holy they never have sinful thoughts. My friend, that is not true. The Bible tells me it's not true. There's some good and godly people. I will not deny you that. But if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves. 
and the truth is not in us. Day by day, you can only live the Christian life today. That's why the Lord's Prayer says, give us this day, right, our daily bread. Not just food to eat, but spiritual food to feast on. Think of it, you need your food daily, and you need to take in the word of God daily, and you need to encourage others daily. Job said in Job 23, verse 12, I've esteemed the words of God's mouth as more important than my daily food. There is a conviction we ought to embrace. Why? Because sin is deceitful. Do you ever get a call on your cell phone or an email message on your computer from someone saying, hi, I just I have something great for you. All you have to do is click here, and this is going to be wonderful. You ever get that? And I hope you don't listen to them. They're fishing to find someone who will take the bait, and you open the site, and the virus is on the computer, and you'll have a rough time getting it off. Sin is deceitful. It has unusual power in its deception. We see that, don't we, from Adam and Eve. Here are people who had not known sin, perfect in the sense that God had given them a really balanced temperament, a perfect environment. They were living in his presence and fellowshipping with God every day. They were not perfect like God, but again, never acquainted with sin. And yet they fell. And the tempter came to them not saying, God is a liar. The first question was, hath God said? Oh, really? Wow, seems harsh to me. <laughs> if they fell in their perfect state, you and I can readily yield to sin, can we not? You and I who are tainted with sin and depraved by it, damaged because of it, saved by grace yet, but still sinners saved by grace, right? Oh, oh is that not true of you? You're just saved by grace, the sin is gone? Not true. Sin is deceitful. It comes in a garb, Paul said, like a preacher of righteousness. It comes at the as the light when it is all darkness. Sin is the greatest evil in the universe, and the deceitfulness of sin makes it more ruinous than anything we can contemplate. We ought to pray more that we would be kept from sin than kept from sickness or even death. Not that they're bad to pray for those things, but daily encourage one another because sin is deceitful. Sin comes with acceptable names today, too. Did you notice that? Old lies with new faces. Immorality is pleasure or freedom. Don't tell me what to do. I'm free. Greed is often thought of as the American way. I'm all for freedom when it comes to our financial status, but we don't know how to use that. And the devil does. 
So he gives these acceptable names that, to sin which kills us and we're deceived all the while and take it in because we think we're better than falling to such temptation. Spurgeon once said, call garlic perfume, but it still remains rank. <laughs> call sin what you want to, it is still deadly. But then the devil does the reverse. Once you have sinned, he tells you, oh boy, you've blown it now. Wow, that was pretty bad. I really didn't know you were going to do that. Really? Whew, you're gone. Oh, forget it now. Forget it. There's no hope. Remember those people who fell in the wilderness? You're just like them. You're lost. You'll never enter into his rest. Give up. You see, the devil takes the message of Christ and defiles it any way he can. And that's why we have to be on our guard and encourage one another not to fall. It is true they are not all Israel who are of Israel. It is true you and I fall. The righteous person falls seven times. but gets up again because the grace of God is greater than all our sin. Isn't that amazing? Sin with its deceit, deceitful lore and its horrible, deadly power has been conquered by Christ at the cross. And if you really believe that, then the Bible says in verse 14, chapter 3, we have come to share in Christ. He came to share in our humanity. We share in his glory. And the proof of that, the proof that we are true believers, the proof that our profession in Christ is genuine, is revealed in our perseverance. And that's what verse 14 says. If we hold firmly to the end, the confidence that we had at the beginning. It's not that we keep ourselves saved by holding on. That would be impossible. We'd always lose it. It's that truly saved individuals, by God's grace, go on. Can they fall? Yes. Can they backslide? Absolutely. But God's grace, just like to Israel, says, come back to me, O backsliding Israel, and I will redeem you. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sin be as scarlet, it shall be as white as snow. And though it is red like crimson, I will make it like wool. I'll bring you back and wash your sin and make you whole again. And so this warning passage has great hope. But it says today there is an eschatological today that means there's coming a final day there was a day when psalm 95 was written there was a day when the hebrew people said no to going into the holy land there was a day as the author wrote to these christians in that first century and there is a day today called today what do we know about today mentioned here multiple times in the text and again in chapter 4. It's present but short-lived. It's an opportunity but today is gone tomorrow. You say tomorrow becomes today for a little while and then they run out. 
The whole point of the passage is this. God is a God of grace. Don't act in presumption. Watch over your heart. What makes you think that you're a believer? I walked an aisle. I prayed a prayer. Good. Good start. What about now? I'm not too interested anymore. Oh, really? That's scary. But I can't perform up to a level of a perfect Christian. No one can. You don't base your assurance on your performance. You base it on Christ. But if you really know Christ, you want to go on, right? You want to go on. You want more of the Word. You want more of Jesus. As imperfect as we are today, if you hear, don't harden. Those are the two options. From Psalm 95, come and with humble souls adore, come bow before his face. Oh, may the creatures of his power be children of his grace. Today he calls, hear now his voice, don't put him to the test, lest he arouse his wrath and swear, you shall not see my rest. Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful that the message of the gospel is good news. Not if we reject it, but if we embrace it. There's another time in the book of Hebrews where you take an oath. This oath is that those who reject you will not enter into your rest. The next oath is that those who trust you will never be lost that you will keep them, that they are forever yours. Lord, in this moment on Father's Day, we think of a heavenly Father who is perfect and who out of love for us sent his Son to pay the penalty for our sin. Lord, if there are some people here today who don't know if they're believers, I pray, pray that they will go to Jesus in prayer and say, save me. The honest heart is never rejected. And for the person who has been wandering astray, dull of hearing, maybe approaching that hardened heart, wake them up, Lord, while it is yet today. And Lord, those of us who name the name of Christ, with embarrassment we confess our sin and our daily failures. But with hope in the righteousness of our risen Savior, we claim forgiveness and pray that you will get us on the path of continuing to hear and to obey. For the next few moments, let me encourage you just to pray. Whatever your need, turn to Christ and you will find a loving, merciful, willing Savior. Let's pray.
Lord, as we're reminded today, help us to remember that when we hear your word in Scripture faithfully proclaimed, it's the Holy Spirit himself speaking to us. Amen.